0: today's sermon scripture from Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience Father, thank you for your word. May it have its way with us today. Please open our hearts to hear you again and live in truth. Lord, be with Dan as he presents out of your word. May he be encouraged by what he sees. May we be encouraged as well by what we see. And may you be glorified in our responding to your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated.
1: Well, good morning. My name is Dan Churchwell, and I have the pleasure of serving as one of the elders here at Christ Church. My family and I uh, have had the privilege to be here uh, in this congregation in West Michigan for about five and a half years. And uh, with Andrew being gone, it is a, a blessing to have uh, multiple preachers coming over the next weeks. Um, what do they say, right? Variety is the spice of life. And so we are, we are going through a series called Etched on Their Hearts. And there hasn't been a lot of direction, uh, just the ability to preach on something that has been impactful to you at the moment. And so today I'm bringing Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Uh, Some of you know that over the past three months, uh, this past quarter, has uh, not been one for the record books for me or, or the Churchwell family. I've been in the hospital twice, emergency room three times, and diagnosed with some sort of rare neurological syndrome. And so my neck and shoulder and arm, I mean, I've just had terrible medical issues. And over the past three months, we've been ministered to in a way that I can't even really express through this church, through notes, through texts, through visits, through the meal chain, and so, I promised myself I wouldn't do this, this passage has been very real and alive And embodied to me and my family. And so, join me in praying uh, for this passage. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for life. I thank you for experience. And Lord, the longer we live, we know that life is often full of trial and tribulation. It's full of joy and exuberance. And Lord, your word helps us put words or understanding or meaning into what can often be a difficult place and time. And Lord, I pray for the people here. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we struggle with the issues that are in this text. I thank you for the reminder So many centuries ago, from this letter to a group of Jewish believers. And God, may we hide it in our hearts, and may your spirit speak to us in the way that we need to learn today. In your name, amen. So in April of 2020, right before, well, essentially the the month that the uh, COVID, all the COVID implications truly hit the world... A book was published by the United States Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. And the book is called Together. And the subtitle is The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Lonely World. And of course, if you know anything about publishing, this means this book was already finished and was just getting to the publisher and out. And so this was pre-COVID in understanding. There were pandemic, according to his language, pandemic levels or epidemic of loneliness in america and he likened it to the power and the effect of the opioid crisis but not clearly we see death in opioid in the opioid crisis you look at the different places in the country and it's very clear to see the effect of the opioid crisis but uh, Dr. Murthy goes on to say, the epidemic of loneliness is driven by an accelerated pace of life and the spread of technology into all of our social interactions. Efficiency and convenience have edged out the time-consuming messiness of real relationships. And so this is coming from the top doctor in the united states well before COVID hit and now in the last two years and three months we've seen absolutely doubled down on that idea the separation we have had from friends colleagues church members business i mean it, the upheaval is unprecedented in our time but the conversation is not unprecedented Each generation has had a breakout book or conversation around this idea of anxiety, loneliness, and depression. Bowling Alone came out uh, 22 years ago in 2000, the famous book by Robert Putnam, who argues that the lack of our institutions and the lack of the ability to meet together in all kinds of ways, is leading to bowling alone. We're alone together. And then in 1953, you have the, uh, or excuse me, in 1979, you have Christopher Lash talking about the culture of narcissism. The world is all me, my mind. It's about me. The culture is me. And the generation before that, you have Robert Nisbet writing his classic work, The Quest for community in 1953. And I could go on. Each generation has one of these books. And in Hebrews, when we look at the text, there much is dealing with these same kinds of things. The book in the, of Hebrews is written to a group of people. It's unclear whether they're in Italy or the writer's writing from Italy, but there's a it, it's very clear there's a Jewish community group that the author knows and he's trying to encourage them to stave off apostasy it's a pretty heavy topic and what he means by apostasy the writer is arguing that you know as jewish believers you know a new and better way you've been introduced to jesus the messiah And that what you knew before this was merely a shadow of the truth. And now that you know Jesus, do not go back to that shadow or that symbol of the truth. You know the truth. And that, per- that truth is embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's a pretty heavy letter and there are five exhortations, embedded, uh, warnings embedded in the book, and sprinkled with exhortations. So there's warnings and exhortations, and we're ha- we happen to be at a part right before one of the major warnings. So I didn't want to come to you and introduce myself and then lay down this terrible warning. I wanted to do something encouraging, and so you have in verse 19 through 21 this introduction to a new and better way. In your bulletin, you have a a basic outline, a very simple outline. And the first part is a new and better way. So the original audience would know that the Old Testament is authoritative. And the writer in Hebrews in chapter 3, he encourages them, he says, look, we know the Old Testament is authoritative, but it is incomplete. And now you know what is completing all of those symbols and pointings towards the future that allowed the saints of old to have faith and hope in what was coming, not what was. And the author is saying, look, we now know what is, what, what, it's Christ himself. In fact, the argument goes is the Jewish Messiah is superior even to the biblically revealed Jewish religion. And for us, I don't know if there's any Jewish converts here, but that that doesn't fall the same on our ears as it would to a first century Jewish audience facing a certain kind of persecution themselves as Jews nationally, but then religiously having a conversion and becoming Christians, followers of the way. In Romans three nineteen through 21, we see that the author of Hebrews is encouraging people um, to remember what Paul is writing in multiple places, that the ceremonial acts of the past Saved no one. This is rough, right? Because in the Jewish audience, if you remember your Old Testament, if you remember the Pentateuch, there were so many ways of offering and seeking after favor because of the sins of the people. And the priests would continually, daily be offering sacrifice. It was visible. They could smell it. They could hear it. They could see it. Continuously offering sacrifices. But when you look back at the Old Testament, you see that offering sacrifices flowed from the life of one rightly related to God by faith, but was not the means of a right relationship. There was an obedience factor But it wasn't the means of a right relationship. In other words, without the right heart attitude, the volition, your will, without the will and the faith and the movement towards the truth, the sacrifices meant nothing, and at worst were repugnant to God. That's pretty heavy. And I only have to offer up Psalm 40, Psalm 51, Micah 6, 6 through 8, and I could go on. There's a litany, 10, 20, 30 places we could look in the Old Testament, where, like in Psalm 46 through 10, we see this idea of, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. Burnt offering and sin offerings, you have not required. Psalm 51, 10 through 18, this concept. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God, these are the sacrifices of God. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, these you will not despise. Micah 6, 6 through 8, a lot of us life verse kind of thing. But if you read in the sandwich section, if you read in Micah, it's a pretty powerful passage that we pull Micah 6, 6 through 8 out of. It's all a question. It's not a statement. It's a question. And he says, the writer of Micah says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, thousands of rams, rivers of oil, my firstborn? He has, has he not told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? It's a question not a statement. Many of us, we read it or hear it or think about it as a statement. And the writer, Micah is arguing, he's looking at, really? Does God require all, in that litany, are referring all to things that the people do continuously, offering the oil, the rams, and even the allusion to the firstborn? And the writer says, look, remember, Is it not what the Lord requires of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? And the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage uh, a Hebraic people, a Hebraic, Christ-loving, Christ-understanding people to not lose heart, lose faith, and to go back to the shadow of that system. Don't be that way, is what he's saying. So this takes a lot of setup, right? And so we don't have time to go through 10 through 18, but it's a beautiful setup to get to 19 because we understand that Christ's Christ's sacrifice is once and for all. Remember what they witnessed in the Old Testament is continuous sacrifice. And so the amazing power of the word, of the reminder that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, what that means is that there's no more offering of sin. It is finished. That is what the power of tetelestai was when Jesus hung on the cross. It is finished to tell us die. It is over. Christ is the glue, the connective tissue between the old and the new. It is his power and his work his death, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, the story of who Christ is that brings us to the point of this letter. He's saying, remember, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And again, that, that, that vivid, vivid imagery would be so different for the Hebrew audience. And that is why in verses 22 and 23, we are introduced to a powerful promise he's like look remember there's a better way there's a better way and in 22 and 23 the writer reminds us let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience our bodies washed with pure water and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised he who promised is faithful so the two actions there hold fast excuse me draw near and then hold fast those are active Engagements, active reminders, because of Christ. That's the mechanism, that's the fulcrum by which we even have the power, the will, the ability, and should I say even the desire to do right. the desire to do good, the volition, the will, the power to do those things comes from Jesus Christ. And this idea of to draw near with a sincere heart has always haunted me since I heard this. I'm reminded of 1 Thessalonians 2 uh, 2 and 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our heart. There is an active relationship between the words I say and what I know to be true and my actions that flow from those things. And if you were to take a moment, if I were to be uncomfortably silent up here, we could actually ponder and think about how hard it is Without supernatural ability to have the desire to do anything that's good. More often than not, I'm selfish. More often than not, I want what provides for me in the best way possible. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that is the human condition, pride in all things. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding this core group that he knows a letter to a very specific, this is going to make sense and and be important as we get to the third point. He knows them. He understands who they are. He knows the personalities at play. He knows the desires. He knows the pull of the Jewish religion. And he's saying, draw near with a sincere heart because we know God is a God who tests our hearts. And not only do we draw near actively, it's us volitionally moving towards God, saying, God, what do you have for me? What does obedience look like? How shall I then live? We draw near, but we also hold fast. Hold fast. And largely, he's telling them to hold fast in a period of adversity. This isn't an easy time for the Jewish members of Christianity in the first century. And we only have to see a verse, uh, 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 a chapter ahead, half a chapter ahead. That is why the power of chapter 11 that many of us like and know and read, famous uh, chapter on faith, right? Hebrews 11.1 He's trying to encourage the believers. Now remember, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then the writer of Hebrews goes, and what does he do? This is where I'm a teacher and not a preacher or something. I I want feedback, but if you remember, it's such a beautiful thing. He says, remember, and then he lists all of the people who lived by faith Didn't know Christ, didn't have access to the power of Christ, but knew by faith through obedience, through the will, that they were looking and anticipating a better way. And he just lists, remember those the people who had obedience and did that. And he goes, now you have access to the better way. So if you're drawing near with a sincere heart, Hold fast, dear brothers and sisters, because faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. I love the power of the knowledge that this writer has. Sometimes when we come to scripture, it seems very, I don't know, textbook-like, or foreign. And much of the New Testament, almost all of the New Testament, is a letter to a certain group of people. A reminder, an encouragement, an exhortation, and may I say a warning to live the life of Christ. And it is Christ who is the glue. It is Christ, it is the powerful promise that he is faithful and this is coming right on the heels that his work is done and the power comes through christ seated at the right hand of god so remember it's a remember this so not only does he encourage them in a better way or reminds them of a better way encourages them that the powerful promise is embedded in the person and nature and work. The ontology is the the nature of Jesus, the nature of Christ and his work is what gives us the power to do this. And that's then when he comes to the main part of this sermon is the intimate exhortation. The intimate exhortation of verses 24 and 25. So he was addressing the ceremonial, kind of the theological aspects of the religion, of the the Jewish religion, and even, you know, trying to contrast that with the the new and living way of Jesus. And now we get to more of a moral, or uh, what what one commentator said, the, the social obligation. If then... If this is true, if this is what we're doing, then this is how it should work itself out. This is the social obligation, the reality, the tangible, the embodied truth of this theological commitment. And in verse 24, he says, And let us consider how to stir one another up with love and good deeds, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. This idea, depending on how you grew up, this idea of to stir up or to stimulate, the actual idea is to provoke. That's the textual understanding. And usually, the word used here is in the negative like provoking one to anger. If you ever provoke someone, that's all theoretical, right? We, we don't understand what that means. We can conceptually think about it. Okay, I understand what it means. I'll admit it. But here, the writer is flipping the regular usage of provoke. So it, it, it's, it's in the extreme, It's not just, hey, provoke one another to love and good deeds. And a lot of times growing up, uh, I grew up in a Baptistic context, um, and this idea of good works, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, like, ugh, Catholics. That's how I grew up. I had this kind of this vague fear Works don't lead us to heaven, you know, and it was incomplete, it was immature. But some of us might, there might be some baggage of that idea. The clear social obligation of understanding Christ's work, what he has done for us, is to do this very thing. The social obligation. If you're reminded of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a lot of people have done sword drills or Bible memory verses, and 2, 8, and 9 is pretty popular, but a lot of times, most of you probably know this, we don't tack on 10, we kind of forget that, or it's not as emphasized, but Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, I'm just going to stop right there, not of your own doing that flies in the face of the majority of the American narrative it's hard for us modern Americans in 2022 to understand that you did nothing to earn your salvation or the grace of God You cannot pull yourself up by your theological bootstraps. You can't buy your way, work your way, do anything to earn the salvation that is offered through faith. Paul goes on to say, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. We're back to that tangible, really earthy illustration. We are his workmanship. Created, though, here we get to verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We're back to active We are workmanship. Christ has created us. We haven't earned our salvation through good works. But now that we know who we are in Christ, good works are the natural outworking of that. If, then. There's some tension there. And I love how one of my spiritual intellectual mentors, Dallas Willard, puts it this way. The path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ, is not passive. Grace is is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. Let me say it again. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. Paul, and I'm quoting Willard still, Paul, who perhaps understood grace better than any other mere human being, looked back at what had happened to him and said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me did not prove vain. I labored, though, even more, Than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. There is an active engagement, an active component to what we are doing. There is an effort in the Christian life. There is a, a will and a volition to move towards Jesus, to understand the work of Jesus and your place in it. This is the title of the sermon. This is life. Together, And it is Christ's union, our union with Christ, that separates this kind of thing from anything other, any other institution, group, or people. We obviously need good, strong, virtuous politicians, and the political spectrum is broken at this time, but we need virtuous people there. We need virtuous people in all kinds of jobs, vocations, disciplines, and guilds. But it is not Christ who binds all of those things. It is Christ that binds the believer in the church. And then we are empowered to go out and be salt and light in those spectrums. So in other words, the writer is encouraging or exhorting, and and the word exhorting there literally means to come alongside and give aid. It's very active and tangible and earthy. To exhort one another to love and good deeds is to come alongside and give aid. We are part of the body of Christ. And at any church, the pastoral leadership, the elders, the deacons should not be expected to know and meet every need. We are to lead the body, to encourage the body, to develop and encourage one another to love and good deeds. All of us are important in that process. There is obviously an implied intimacy. We're scared of that word because it's commonly applied to sexuality in our common parlance, but it's just not true. There's an obvious social obligation which means a certain kind of intimacy, a knowledge of who we are in Christ. And obviously, I do not mean that you should all be exhorting and encouraging one another like every single person should know every single issue about all the people in all the things, right? That's impossible. That's not what I'm saying. But what I want to ask you in the practical part of this is who in this church do you know? Who do you know? Who are you connected with? What does the Venn diagram of your life look like as it relates to Christ's church? I mean, the New Testament goes so far as to say we should be confessing our sins to one another. And the American attitude to that is over my dead body. Really? You want me to confess my sins to you? If you don't think that requires a certain kind of intimacy, I don't know how else to describe it. Because there is a certain kind of intimacy or closeness needed so that one can best understand how to render aid, a triage of a kind, a spiritual triage. And how many of you have received so welcomed counsel from someone who doesn't know you? Who doesn't understand? I mean, the hypothetical here is I was outside the church. I was, I was as an elder, I wasn't here for seven weeks straight. Bad example, Dan. You should be in church. Well, let me tell you about the neurological block they had to do as they injected a needle straight through my shoulder and clipped the nerve and did the deal. And let me tell you then, I had to go in the hospital because they couldn't fix the fatigue. And they found a dual set of a saddle blood clot in both my lungs so that I was, I was functioning. I was like, why are you tired? And the doctor looked at me, you're tired because your lungs are blocked 50% and you're not breathing well, and now you need to go on a blood thinner. I'm like, I haven't been on medication my whole life, and now I'm on five. I hate it. But I listened, And they're all, this is COVID-related. I'm like, that's weird, you can't refute that. Or learn, just, okay, give me the drugs. But if you don't know that, like, Dan's not coming to church. He's not being a very good example. I sat in pain for almost two months, pain that I couldn't move. I looked like a hunchback. My back was in constant spasm. And what the doctors and nurses would do, I would go to the ER, and they would fix the fruit, not the root. The ER said, we're not the place for that. Here's some morphine and Valium and whatever else they gave me. Godspeed. And it took a process to figure out what my problem was. And so it's a little too hyperbolic, too theatrical, but it's almost a miracle that I'm standing here because three weeks ago, I could barely move 100 steps. And so I'm thankful for listening. And I want to have that illustration for you, map that on to a certain kind of spiritual triage in our lives. Because a lot of times we know we're sick, we know there's something wrong, we have spiritual fatigue, we have physical pain, we have emotional pain, we're in existential moments of crisis and a lot of us serve like the ER and they say, here's some stuff, go, bless, whatever. We don't know what your root problem is. It took sustained weeks, virtually a part-time job of managing doctors and specialists and drug, all this stuff, to kind of get a figure of what's going on with me. That's what life together is, the same thing. It takes time to listen to one another, to our problems, to our engagements, to our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our pains, our sin. And then we can stop dealing with the fruit and get to the root of our issues. And those are different for all of us, but the same. But the intimacy required to have a friend, to have a small group, to have some intimacy of any kind in your social network, here at church, is what truly Embodies Christ. I'm reminded of John 13, 34, and 35, embedded in the passage where Christ is washing the feet of the disciples. Remember, they hated that? No, don't do that, Jesus. Let us wash. You know, it's a great commentary. And then 34, 35, Jesus says to his disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples is if you love one another. In conclusion, we have this life together. And Christian community means community through and in Jesus Christ. And it's on this presupposition that rests everything the scriptures provide in the way of direction and precepts for the communal life of Jesus. Life together under the word will remain sound and healthy only where it does not form itself into movements, orders, or societies, but rather where it understands itself as being part of what we read earlier, the one holy Catholic Christian church where it shares actively and passively in the sufferings and struggles of the promise of the entire church. These are the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic work, Life Together. Published posthumously, because those of you who know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed a month before the uh, allies came and liberated the camp, which he was in in 19- April of 1945. And in his book, he ends that one of the best places to understand this communal life together, he ends the book, the last chapter is on the table. Communion together literal communion to remind us of the communion we should be inhabiting to one another. I encourage you, therefore, brothers and sisters, hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful. Therefore, let us consider how to stir up one another, provoke one another, to love and good deeds even more as we see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for Christ church. I thank you for the reminder, the chastisements, the encouragements that come from your word. I thank you for the preservation of your word so that we may learn more about you and glean the truth from these scriptures. God, I pray you would be on the hearts through your Holy Spirit, the gift to us, that you have given us another comforter, that you would encourage one another to love and good deeds, Lord. May we think how to practically put this into practice. Thank you for your blessings. And we pray for grace through the tribulations. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.